Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 35 in a minute. But as you turn there, perhaps you've heard the phrase, pride comes before the fall. And there are a couple videos out there that are a great example of people's pride making them stumble. Let's just take a moment here and watch two short videos here. Rachel, Michelle, Hutchinson. Things were going so well. I love how the girl tries to maintain her dignity, you know, walking off still with her. They worked so hard, and we're finally tasting the reward uh, for success, but then something happened, something that suddenly hijacked their success. Their own pride took over, and they stumbled hard, badly, turning their success into failure, embarrassment. That's what pride always, eventually, does when it hijacks our success. And, of course, a ceremony, graduation, or a bike race is one thing, but stumbling in life itself, well, that's another matter, right? You just can't get up and walk off after that. These particular examples we saw happen very quickly, but usually this kind of fall happens in our lives much slower, drawn out, often over many, many years at times. In our sermon series, going through the gospel of Mark, Mark's account of Jesus' life and teaching and and ministry, we've seen that Jesus' life and teaching and ministry has been all about what's called the gospel. That just means the good news of the kingdom of God. That's how Mark, in fact, summarizes all of, sums up all of Jesus' ministry. It is in and by this coming kingdom of God, this good news where Jesus says, we find true shalom, peace. That Hebrew word for peace, but it just, as we've said, the Hebrew word for shalom, the Hebrew word shalom means so much more than just peace as in kind of the peace sign. It, it means wholeness completeness, well-being, the way things should be, flourishing, shalom in our lives, shalom in our relationships, and in the whole world forever in his kingdom. That's the good news Jesus would eventually die and rise again to secure for his people. That's the whole promise. That's the whole message. But right now, this world is full of enemies to your shalom. That's also the message full of enemies to your finding true shalom. And there is one particular enemy that's the greatest threat of them all. And at the end of chapter 12, beginning here in Mark 12, 35, we read three quick little accounts. At first, they seem random. Why is this here? Why is that couple sentences, couple verses there? They don't seem to go together. But upon further reflection, we see that they're all three telling us, showing us what is the greatest threat to our finding shalom in the kingdom of God. Here it is. Are you ready? It's you. Well, specifically, 
It's pride. Actually, three ways your pride will hijack your life and keep you from finding shalom. So we're going to read three stories, and, and here's the first. The first way you can let pride hijack your shalom. This is the first threat to shalom in your life, and it's this, seeing Jesus as less than who he really is. That's always what we're seeing in Mark. That's always the issue, and it particularly comes to the surface here in chapter 12, verse 35. Remember, they've been trying to bombard Jesus with questions, these religious leaders, as he's coming to Jerusalem. They keep trying to present riddles to him. And finally it says in verse 34, the verse right before this, no one dared ask him any more questions because his answer always put them back. His answers always made them look worse than when they started. So they stopped. They gave up. And all of a sudden Jesus is going to turn the tables here. And seeing Jesus as less than who he really is is where he's going. Have you seen one of the, in these YouTube videos like we looked at here? There's one out there. I don't know if you've seen it. The so-called time traveler in the background of a 1920s Charlie Chaplin film. You seen that? Let's just watch this real quick, a little news account of it. It's a question as old as time itself. Is time travel possible? According to a YouTube video posted by George Clark, not only is it possible, he says he's got proof. You've got to see this. Watch with me. This is a movie clip from 1928. This is a movie premiere for Charlie Chapman's The Circus. And you see the woman walking in the background with her hand to her ear. We're trying to zoom in so you can see it here. Uh, there's a woman talking on a cell phone. Um, but wait, cell phones didn't exist 82 years ago. So you see the dilemma. See her hand up to her ear. She's talking. Who's she talking to? What she's talking on? We don't know. Others saying, no, that's not a cell phone. You know, she's holding a hearing device. Others are saying she traveled back in time. The clip here gone viral, and it's causing quite a stir on the net. Hearing device, cell phone. Hearing device, cell phone. I'll let you be the judge. You're convinced, right? That's the kind of excellence our news is bringing us these days. <laughs> Stay tuned. Time traveler found. You know, what's weird is that when you look at this 1928 film, I mean, you really are looking at a woman who probably was an adolescent during the Civil War. I mean, in some sense, it's kind of fascinating to look back into the timeline of history, so to speak, like that. I obviously don't believe in time travel, but the Bible does tell us, unlike any other human being, that Jesus himself was kind of a time traveler. Jesus transcended time so that when Jesus would read the Old Testament, for example, he could actually look into an Old Testament passage written a thousand years before his life and find himself written about right there. And that's exactly what he's going to do right now with these experts in the Old Testament. He goes, right here, that's me. You've been studying that all your life, always been about me. He does exactly that at the start of our passage in Mark today, looking back a thousand years into the past at a psalm that King David wrote around 1000 B.C. It's Psalm 110. And Jesus points to himself in this thousand-year-old psalm, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, this is all still happening. I'm just going to the next passage after Keith's passage last week. He asked them, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and now Jesus quotes from the very first verse of Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies 
under your feet. And Jesus goes on. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. They enjoyed Jesus turning the table and presenting his own little riddle to these teachers. Now notice that, that Jesus believed that King David, just like the Bible attributes this psalm to him, King David actually wrote the psalm, and that at the same time his psalms were spoken, written by the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus' view of the psalms. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. This is Jesus' view of not only the psalms, but all of the Old Testament, as we looked at a couple weeks ago when Charles spoke upon the, the question the Sadducees had for Jesus. And the question we have to ask ourselves after we hear Jesus talk about the psalms this way and talk about the Old Testament this way is, is, that, is that our view? When we're reading the psalms and worshiping God through the psalms, are we reading something that has actually been written to us by the Holy Spirit to us and for us with truth? And power as God's word has. Jesus asked these teachers of what we call the Old Testament, what they would call the law, these teachers of the law about their understanding of the Messiah. They had one, they had a concept, because it's all through the Old Testament, whether the son of David, that term son of David, was altogether adequate. Was it enough in and of itself to explain who the Messiah will actually be? Or is he, in fact, much more than a son of anybody, a son of any human? Son of David was a common term used for referring to the promised Messiah because all the way back, a thousand years before, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised King David that the Messiah would be his descendant and will reign over an eternal kingdom. So, for example, back in Mark chapter 10, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem and was nearing Jerusalem, the blind Bartimaeus called out to Jesus as the son of David, kept repeating, the son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus didn't object to him calling him that. In fact, Jesus healed his blindness for it. So it's a perfectly fine term. Jesus wants to prevent, present a riddle. Is it ad adequate? God's promise to David a thousand years prior to Jesus actually revealed something, someone, a Messiah, much more transcendent, a timelessness to him, more than any merely human being. That's what's happening in Psalm 110 when David writes about the Messiah a thousand years earlier, written over a thousand years before Jesus was born. It says this, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, David writes about the Messiah, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, Psalm 110 is one of what's called those messianic psalms. David, the ancestor of the Messiah, would write these, these messianic psalms. Psalm 2 is one of them, Psalm 8, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All these psalms, Psalm 10 is one of these messianic psalms that somehow in the Spirit, David is prophesying about the reality of the Messiah and those who have ears to hear, eyes to see, so to speak, will find the Messiah written in these psalms. And the crux is the first line. The Lord, God, 
says to my Lord, the Messiah, where the first Lord refers to God and the second one refers to the promised son of David. So in his Columbo-esque kind of way, Jesus sort of scratching his head, presenting a riddle, asks this question of the religious leaders, the intellectual elite of Judaism. He says, huh, well, that's interesting. David himself calls him my Lord. How then can he be his son? Or just his son might be the idea. See, Jesus is saying that a thousand years earlier, King David himself was, by the Holy Spirit, pointing to his descendants, the Messiah's transcendent status, sitting at God's honored and authoritative right, and calling him, his descendant, my Lord. In other words, the Messiah in some way will be David's Lord on a level with God himself, his right hand, and not merely his son, his descendant. And so Jesus is saying, have you caught that? You're not looking for a mere man here. Someone so much more. Someone you might accuse of blasphemy if you listen to him long enough, unless he really was God. And Jesus is hinting that that's him. But he's also saying more than that to these experts in the Old Testament. See, because a common practice in ancient Judaism among rabbis was to quote a biblical passage, quote a line from it, but also be referring to what preceded that line or what followed it without actually quoting that. And in that way, only the learned, only those who had these things memorized, would be able to participate in the discussion. It's kind of a smart thing, kind of a good way to weed out just wannabes. And so what's interesting is that in Psalm 110, as David is prophesying, he continues beyond verse 1, his other verses, and in verse 4, he begins to speak of this coming Lord. We won't have time today to look into it. It'd be a great sermon for another time. Actually, the book of Hebrews talks quite a bit about it in chapter 7. But to speak of this coming Lord, he will be the king of righteousness. That's what the word Melchizedek means. He'll be the king of righteousness the king of shalom and the perfect priest forever. And so by Jesus' question, Jesus is saying that if you see Jesus in any way, anything less, merely as a human being who taught good things, said good things, if you don't see him as the transcendent Lord, whose kingdom will reign forever, the king of righteousness, the king of shalom, a perfect priest forever, then something's happened. Something has happened inside of you called pride that is hijacking your only true shalom forever. There won't be shalom if you see Jesus less than the king of shalom. Well, that's the first. But here's the second way you can let pride hijack your shalom. The second threat to shalom is seeing God and seeing others, catch this, as a means to your own sense of self-importance. Using God, using others for something inside you. See, Mark chapter 12 continues with verse 38. He's still in the temple, it says, and he, has, he taught, Jesus says, watch out. Now, whenever Jesus says, watch out, 
He's trying to get your attention. You better be careful. This is very dangerous, and it might happen to you. Watch out for the teachers of the law, these intellectual and religious elite of Judaism. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They like that. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. All of a sudden, the conversation's taking a serious turn. It's probably okay for these special biblical teachers to wear clothes that showed and gave people confidence in their credentials in some way. That's a legitimate thing. I wouldn't feel comfortable seeing my doctor at his office if you were wearing gym shorts, for example. There's something about it. I need clothing that shows he's supposed to be doing this. (laughs) Or she. And it's probably okay to accept prominent seats when offered or when available. Jesus did that on occasion. Probably okay. It's probably, in fact, a good thing to be greeted with respect in the community. Better than being greeted with disrespect. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. That's not what Jesus is condemning here. Jesus says, watch out because they like it. That word, like, it's a translation from the original language this was written in, the Greek language of a word, thelo. It means, it means to desire. It means to want, to, to will that something happen, to seek this. In other words, watch out, not because they're doing these things, but watch out because this is what they want. This is what they're seeking. This is what they're willing to happen. This is what they desire. That became their goal, their desire, what they were seeking in their success. What they were seeking in this case because of who they were in their ministry. Somehow, something happened. Somehow their ministry eventually became about how much they loved others loving them rather than about loving God and loving others. The direction of love got reversed that Keith talked about last week. The direction of love got backwards, using God and using others for love of self. That's what happened. And that's always what happens. Whenever pride hijacks our successes, their position and successes in life began to foster, began to feed the desire to be recognized and esteemed as important. That became their goal for their ministry. And eventually their self-importance from their position and from their success became abusive to others. Jesus says they, quote, devour widows' houses. Now, how so? To be honest, we're not entirely sure what Jesus means there. But widows were especially vulnerable in those days. Vulnerable in so many ways. Safety, socially, certainly economically. It would be easy for them to be taken advantage of by men of religious status and honor. And we do know from historical record in these days, there are historical records of teachers of the Old Testament embezzling the money of spiritually vulnerable widows. Perhaps that's what Jesus is referring to here. 
But whatever he's referring to here, these pride hijacked religious leaders used their religious status and false piety to abuse and use people to serve themselves and advance their own self-importance. I'm sure glad that never happens today, but just back then. Remember, these aren't just props in a play. These are real people. These teachers of the law have a life story. Their story was real. These leaders were real people with real life stories. Who are they? What happened to them? How did they become this tragic object of God's condemning punishment? My guess is it probably wasn't quick, but it was a slow hijacking by pride over many years. They probably started off loving the Bible and wanting to study it and wanting to teach it, enjoying teaching it. They sacrificed and worked hard through schooling and then taking a low position at first of long hours and very little pay, if any. They taught the Bible over years, and over years they saw success. They were effective at it. They were probably pretty good at it. And their position and status kept advancing over the years, for now these are the scribes of Jerusalem. These aren't somebody in a synagogue up in Peoria. Nothing wrong with Peoria. And all along, something was changing. Something was manifesting in their heart. A slow change. What they started liking most was not the Bible so much, not the teaching so much, not the studying so much, but it was something else now. What they started liking most was the recognition they received of being seen as important. Smart, spiritual, successful. That put a pretty good price tag over them. They were now significant. And eventually they sold out, sold their soul, so to speak. Their pride slowly began hijacking their heart so that those desires became their goal for ministry. That's what kept them going. That's what they wanted most. They liked it. They wanted it. They willed it. They sought it. They desired it, Jesus says. Their ministry became about them and the recognition they received. Success became about them instead of serving and loving others. Relationships became all about them instead of ministry. God became about them. That's what happened. Pride hijacked their ministry of loving God and loving and serving others. And Jesus says that is a devastating tragedy. And of course, this hits home with me and should with anyone in ministry, whether it's a small group leader or a team leader or somebody serving in some way. Any minister on staff at the crossing, any minister on staff any church, as this church becomes larger and as maybe the staff and the pastors become more well-known in our community, there's always this potential for pride, this love of recognition to hijack our ministry success. That can happen. If you see it happening, please tackle me or anybody else. Don't tackle Shay. He just had hip surgery. Gently pat him on the back. Tackle me. 
we need to watch out, as Jesus says, because it can happen to anybody. But this is not just a warning to pastors and people in ministry, is it? It's a warning to any and everyone whom God blesses their lives with success and position and recognition in some way. Because the Bible teaches that every Christian's role in society, their vocation, their job, is their God-given service, ministry, of love to him and love to others. So in that sense, every single Christian has a ministry. Your work is your ministry. Your successes are ministry successes. And the traps are all the same as these scribes, these teachers of the law. So we all need to ask the question in our successes and status and accomplishments and recognition, is it about loving God and loving and serving others? Or is it slowly changing? And I love others loving me. Is it slowly changing into something else for you that's hijacking your success and therefore hijacking your shalom? That's the change that really is the greatest threat to your shalom. At least the second one here in Mark 12. And there is a third way you can let pride hijack your shalom, a third threat to shalom, and that is seeing yourself as the owner of your life and your possessions. A kind of partial surrender to God because after all, He is God, but not the things that are most important to you. You're the owner. They're yours. Still in this temple, Still, the action is unfolding. We're just going to the next verse, verse 41. The action continues. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, listen to this. This is really true. You won't believe it. It seems the opposite, but this is true. This poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, in the temple courts where all this action in chapter 12 has been taking place, 10, 11, 12, those chapters in Mark, in the temple courts, there were these trumpet, in an area there, one of the courts, there were these trumpet-like, ram's horn-like receptacles where worshipers would deposit their monetary giving. And Jesus was sitting across from their watching. Now, that might be awkward for most people, having somebody kind of sit there at the offering plate and just... But for some reason, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Again, Jesus doesn't have a problem looking awkward. <laughs> and, and so I don't know if he was behind a little olive branch or if he's just right there. I don't know. But Jesus is right there watching, and eventually into one of these receptacles, most likely the one designed for what's called the free will offering. It's an offering not required by the Old Testament law, but it's an extra offering as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And right there, Jesus sees a poor widow walk up and drop in two of the smallest coins that existed in circulation back then. 
Now, in purely financial terms, the value of her offering was ridiculous compared to the amount that the wealthier donors gave that day. But in God's exchange rate, things look very differently. Jesus says she gave far more than anyone else that day. How so? Well, Jesus is saying that the real value of sacrificial giving to God is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. The real value of sacrificial giving to God is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. He says that others gave what they could spare, but the poor widow, again, the most vulnerable in Jesus' day, she spared nothing. Others gave from their surplus, but she, from her vulnerable state of poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And, you know, of course, this often challenges me, this story. It should challenge anybody. As my income has grown from time to time over the years, my giving has certainly grown with it as it should. Absolutely, that's a principle of giving in the New Testament. But I must always ask myself this question, am I giving sacrificially or just out of my surplus? And the reason why that's an important question is not to make me feel guilty, but to get to the next question that is the most important question. If I'm not giving sacrificially beyond what I can spare, why not? And now we're starting to get into my belief system. Now we're starting to get to the level of the desires of the heart. Now, Jesus doesn't condemn in any way the larger giving of those wealthier. That was a good thing. They were obeying what the Bible commanded them to do. He doesn't tell his disciples to follow this widow's example literally when it comes to giving money. He doesn't say, now you go and do likewise. The Bible never says that anywhere about giving. There are principles of giving in the New Testament, and it's not give away everything you have or you're being disobedient. I mean, where would we sleep tonight? Out in the church lawn? What Jesus was pointing out was this widow's giving all she had as a true picture, not necessarily of how to give, but how to live. To go all in, so to speak, with our whole lives as a sacrifice to God. Just like Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Or just like 2 Corinthians 8, 2 and 5 says that those they gave out of poverty because they gave themselves to the Lord first and then they gave to the church in keeping with that. It's not a partial surrender. But surrendering everything in our lives to the lordship of the king of Shalom. Again, this widow is not some prop in a play. She's not a character written into the story to make a point. She was a real life. She's a real person with a real life story. Who is she? What happened in her life? Here's what we do know. We do know that somehow, at some point in her life, God took away her husband. And she was devastated by that. We don't know how long ago that happened. It may have been a short time. It may have been a long time ago. But God took away her husband, and it was devastating. And now she was very vulnerable safety-wise. She was vulnerable relationally. She was vulnerable socially. But also she was very vulnerable economically. She's now a very poor widow. All she has is two coins, the smallest coins in the currency of her day. 
But we also know that when God took away her husband and so much of her security and so much of her, she was now so vulnerable, she trusted him still. She didn't sell out to fill what was lacking in her life now. God and his promise of shalom was what she valued most. She needed shalom. She knew it. She knew that she needed God, and God was the only source of shalom. So we know that on that day, she walked into the temple courts. She had only two coins left. And she could have given one. Been a great thing, kept the other. But she gave both of them to God in thankful worship. Still, after all she'd been through and all the uncertainty that still lay ahead for her, she was making an all-in sacrifice of thanksgiving. And without her knowing it, Jesus, the King of Shalom, the real King of Shalom, talked about a thousand years before in her Bible. She'd read that many times, no doubt. The king of righteousness, the priest forever, was watching and saw the whole thing, just like he's watching all of us. She didn't sell out. She didn't sell her soul to fill what was lacking because she knew she had a better, greater promise of God in his shalom. When she surrenders her whole life and everything in her life to him. And this particular act of thankful giving was her way of doing that. That's why, to God, she gave more than anyone else. See, whenever, however, we keep back areas of our lives from Jesus' kingship, Jesus' lordship, we're not gaining what we think we're keeping, we're losing. That's what Jesus is teaching here to his disciples. That's why he calls them over and makes the point. And that's why he says what he says all throughout. Like, for example, back in chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. This is God talking. He controls everything. He kind of knows the ending. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? See, what Jesus knows, what Jesus sees, even if we don't, is that what your soul longs for and needs most is the king of shalom. Perfect in beauty and glory. Perfect in love and wisdom and life-giving, life-restoring redemption forever. And his shalom is free. It's a free gift by his grace, his death, his resurrection, his life becomes yours. He is your shalom. His shalom is both free and it will cost you everything. But everything in your life is like two small, the smallest coins compared to the everything you'll gain in his shalom forever. That's his promise. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, truly, I say to you, it's the opposite of what you think, but I'm the king of shalom. And when you trust me, give everything to me and trust everything in your life to me, you get everything. It's like what C.S. Lewis says, only what you give away will 
be that which you get to keep. And so as the worship team comes back up, I just want us to sit and wrestle with a question. Actually, a series of questions. It's so easy to sell out, to find what is, you think is lacking in God. Letting pride hijack Christ's shalom in your life. You letting that happen? Seeing Jesus is less than he really is? See, because all that God is for you in Christ is the promise you must believe in order to receive his shalom. But are you somehow being tricked into seeing Jesus as less than important, less than all that he is for you in some way, less than the king of shalom, less than the king of righteousness, your perfect priest forever, your Lord who will reign forever? Are you seeing God and others as a means to your own sense of self-importance? You've got to go over here to find your self-worth, your esteem, your significance, because that's not going to be in God. He can't provide that. Shalom's not that for you and God. It's over here somewhere. And so you love being loved by others, the recognition. It's why you do what you do. It's why you get mad when you get mad. It's why you get happy when you get happy. It's that desire that keeps you going. It's what success is to you. It's what your job has become to you. It's what ministry has become to you. You're being tricked. You're being hijacked. And there will be a stumble. Maybe you're seeing yourself as the owner of your life. Maybe you somehow have been tricked into thinking your life is yours. You can do whatever you want. It's yours. You give a little to God as a tithe, but the rest you get to keep. No, no, that's not the way it works. Your life is God's because he created you. You might think it's yours, but it's just on loan. Everything in your life is his. So why not live recognizing that? Instead of a partial surrender, an attitude of full surrender. Listen, Lord, it's, I'm yours. Everything in my life is yours. I want to do what you want me to do with it. Would you pray with me? Lord, is there something robbing us, hijacking shalom from our lives? We're being tricked, we're being fooled, and we're going to fall. Maybe we've fallen already. But you're the king of shalom. You're the perfect priest, the perfect mediator, the perfect bridge between us and shalom forever, and you will reign in your kingdom. And so we pray that you more and more would show us where true shalom is found. We stop selling out for a lesser promise that's nothing in the end. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.